This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dorr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we have the honor to have Dr. Miriam Kingsford-Kadia on the show talking about her new book, Into the Field, Human Scientists of Transwar Japan, published by the Stanford University Press in 2020. Dr. Kingsford-Kadia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and particularly in modern Japan. Sure. Um, I lived in Japan for most of my childhood, which probably explains the origin of my interest. I went to college in the United States, and at the time, I, I guess I already had the hope that my career would take me back to Asia in some way. So I continued to study Japanese as an undergraduate. I also began majoring in history. But actually, when it came time to choose a topic for my senior honors thesis, I ended up writing about Northern Ireland, where I had um, I'd done a peacekeeping fellowship during my junior year. And this was around the time that the troubles were settling. So it was it was an interesting moment. Um, and it was in the process of, of working on this thesis that I sort of fell in love with the archival process, um, just the, the act of finding and putting sources together into this coherent and logical narrative. Um, so while I was working on that, I applied to graduate school, um, and I was really lucky to end up at UC Berkeley, where I put my interest in Japan together with my interest in history, um, and I did my PhD in modern Japanese history. Thank you. Yeah, it's really fascinating to um, learn about your trajectory, uh, especially um, how you came into this process. And before we actually dig into the book, um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write into the field? How did you become interested in the human sciences of transport Japan specifically? Absolutely. In retrospect, it sort of seems to me like this was the product of a few pathways that came together in ways that I couldn't have imagined from the beginning. So from my first book, which was on the history of narcotics in Japan and its empire from the mid-19th through the mid-20th centuries, um, I became fascinated with the intersection of ideas about race and nation building. So to some extent, I think this book, Into the Field, is, is really my way of exploring that convergence. 
more sort of colorfully, while I was doing the research for my first book, I remember visiting the Harbin Municipal Archives uh, in Northeast China. I think it was in early 2008. Um, And there I came across a collection of handwritten anthropology papers by a student named Izun Seiichi. And they were relevant to me at the time because they were discussing opium use by the Orochin, who are a very small ethnic minority on Manchukuo's northern frontier with Russia, um, Soviet Russia. And Izumi visited them very briefly for a study in the mid-1930s. And I took some notes, but then filed them away as interesting. But ultimately, uh, I didn't have any use for those papers in the book. Uh, around the same time as that, I, I also had a few really powerful experiences at archaeology museums, both in China and also in Europe. Um, they made a deep impression on me and left me with the idea that maybe I should have been an archaeologist. Uh, I guess the most important of those was was in Hiroshima. Uh, I visited Hiroshima, I guess, for the same reason that everybody does, to see the Peace Park. But on my last day there, I had a few hours left to kill. So I stopped by the Municipal Museum, Um, and this was the real origin story of my project. It was, at the time, hosting a display of artifacts that Japanese archaeologists had excavated in the 1930s and shipped home from what's now Tajikistan. Um, and I was so curious about how this could have come about, how these, how these, what were these Japanese archaeologists doing there, and um, how did how did they sort of manage to collect these materials, um, get them out of Tajikistan, uh, and take them home? So I started looking into the history of Japanese archaeology. Um, and it was at that moment that I came across the name Izumi Seiichi again, um, because it turned out that in a later phase of his career, he became very well known as a specialist of pre-Columbian Peru. So at that moment, it really started to feel like fate that I should look into his career. Um, and the book really took shape from there. If I'm being perfectly honest, I guess um, another motivation for this project was uh, when I started, I was at a moment in my life when I had the time and space to undertake some really adventurous travel. Um, And so it was really appealing to me, the prospect of of following Izumi to most of the field sites that I discuss in the book. Um, I also went to some that I ended up not being able to work in, just to be able to write more credibly about the various contexts that were important to him and and to mid-century. Japan, and also to bring a sort of an anthropological flavor to a book that ended up being a great deal about the history of anthropology. Wow, that's fascinating. And which places did you go to? Um, Well, there weren't many places that I allude to in the book that I didn't end up visiting. Uh, I guess I... Uh, sort of going chronologically through his career, um, all through Korea, uh, all through China, um, New Guinea, uh, all around Japan, his, uh, up in Hokkaido, Tsushima, uh, around the Tokyo and uh, Kansai area, um, Mexico, Europe, Brazil, Peru, 
uh, it's hard to it's hard to list them all without without a list in front of me. But it was just an amazing around the world journey that uh, ended up being so personally rewarding. Um, and and finding traces of him was was just amazing and made my ability to write about him so much more vivid and gave me a lot more sort of insightful understanding of of what he was up against too. For instance, in New Guinea. I remember seeing that um, he talked about how his expedition uh, had, um, they had hundreds and hundreds of porters for four ethnologists. And I remember wondering, why would you, why would you need so many people to carry stuff for four people? Um, At that point, you're having porters carry food for other porters. And then I got there and realized what it was like to be in a place with no roads, with no maps, with with uh, very hostile terrain. It's very mountainous. It's extremely humid. Um, and it, it kind of made me understand why you would need so many porters. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, as a historian who um, mostly deals with archival work, I also find it necessary, absolutely necessary to go to the field sites and, and experience things firsthand with your sense organs, right, in a way. <laughs> and this book, um, like, I think Izumi Seichi, um, this um, central figure right in your book, is sort of the, the threat that threats up um, all of the stories together. Um, but he's one of a group of people that you call the men of one age, and this book that you are writing into the field is actually the first collective biography right, of this group of people, the men of one age, um, a group of Japanese human scientists actually born in the first two decades of the 20th century, who also produced knowledge that supported the building of the Japanese empire. So to study these individuals who participated in collaborative fieldwork throughout all these you know, um, places around the world in Asia and Oceania in the interwar years. Um, you're also calling our attention to Carl Mannheim's use of generation as a category of analysis, right? You're using sort of Izumi as a person that threats all these people together, but you're also using generation as a category in the book. So please tell us more about this generation theory and how it helps us to understand ideological uh, shifts in modern Japan. No problem. Mannheim was a Hungarian sociologist of knowledge. He he basically founded the field of the sociology of knowledge. He was active in the 1920s, and he originated a sort of scholarly conception of generation. And in fact, he really defined it only loosely. He didn't establish any sort of necessary or sufficient conditions to cohere a generation. He saw it as a group of people more or less bound together by a set of, of common experiences. And these are non-personal experience, nothing, nothing that one uh, go, that we all go through, but on an individual basis. These are sort of uh, more earth-shattering events that people experience at a similar moment in the life course. Um, And generation, it's, it's odd because it does appear in analyses of Japan, um, or or even in common parlance, we, we talk of issei, nisei, sansei, first, second, and third generation, or senpai, kohai, all these generational reference, um, but it's actually not a category that has been very developed in the historiography of Japan. So I was interested in applying it to the Japanese context more or less as an intellectual exercise, 
but more so because Izumi and his contemporaries themselves, and, and also those who observed them, tended to describe themselves this way. Um, and one of those people was Dick Beardsley, an American anthropologist who spent time in Japan during the occupation and afterwards. Um, and it's from him that I borrow the phrase men of one age that he used to describe them. So um, as, as the term indicates, they were all men. Uh, there was no way for women to participate in these knowledge networks, at least for the first half, um, it, at least as un, in, except in the case of, of some unsung heroes. Uh, for instance, Izumi's wife uh, was, was something of a scholar herself, uh, but not, not acknowledged by this group. Um, this was a very uh, homosocial male culture uh, because only men could receive this kind of training that allowed them to become human scientists in the first place. And I see them as having been born roughly in the two decades from 1900 to 1920. I think the oldest really important exemplar of the men of one age was Okamaso, who was born in 1898. Um, and the youngest was probably Misao Tado, who was born in 1920 and was perhaps the last one to pass away in, in 2010. Um, so these men matured at the height of the Japanese empire um, and were intellectually active in the pre-war period. They were largely also militarily active during World War II. Most of them served in the army or the navy or both. Um, and importantly, they were also responsible for restructuring human sciences after the war. So this made them from my mind, a great vehicle to look at trans-war continuity. Um, so, so th this is sort of the common biographical parameters that they shared, but I think what really coalesced them into a generation was their shared commitment to the idea of objective knowledge, um, meaning a sort of a universal, unbiased, and methodologically derived truth. So that was, that was the epistemological unconscious that transformed them into a generation um, that was influential from the 1930s through the 1960s. Thank you. Yeah. And this pursuit of objective knowledge or objectivity, right? This idea of universal knowledge produced through so-called scientific methods uh, was, you know, thoroughly talked about in your first chapter of the book where you discussed the origins of fieldwork in the Japanese empire. Um, so how and why did Japanese scholars come to embrace this idea of objectivity and the human sciences? So objectivity, I see in this book, um, the importance of objectivity coming out of um, a Western concept that by the late 19th century, give or take, had come to connote, as I've said, a sort of a universal, unbiased and method-based truth. Um, and at this time, it emerged as the defining characteristic, the signal characteristic of what could be considered legitimate knowledge or legitimate scholarship. And Japan, of course, had its own indigenous pathways to this idea of objectivity. For example, the empiricism of the Tokugawa period that's been written about by Mary Elizabeth Barry and Federico Marcone and, and others. Um, so in Japan, these intellectual precedents more or less groomed scholars for adopting Western ideas about objectivity. Um, and they wanted to do this in part because being able to create scholarship that 
Europe and the United States saw as legitimate uh, gave them the status of being part of an intellectual community that that uh, in turn buttressed Japan's geopolitical status. Um, and it also made this intellectual community transnational more than simply Western. And Japan, I think, was really the first non-Western nation uh, to breach that barrier. So um, in, in terms of the human sciences, I think that the, the, the story is, is a little bit similar, actually. I use the term human sciences to talk about the branches of scholarship that are centrally concerned with human diversity. So um, anthropology, ethnology, or ethnography, and archaeology sort of as the core three, but branching out into sociology, political science, religious studies, philosophy, economics, and and so on and so forth. Um, And Japan, of course, had its own indigenous ways of of studying human diversity, uh, even going back to the Kojiki. Uh, But in the late 19th, early 20th century, Western methods and ideas were adopted as a way of of signifying the intellectual superiority and belonging of the Japanese nation within this international intellectual community. Thank you. And then in terms of methods, the Japanese human sciences of this generation seem to have borrowed from the British social anthropologist uh, Branislaw Menenslaw, right? Uh, Menin, um, Malinowski. Malinowski. Yeah. <laughs> Malinowski's fieldwork methods um, as a source of scholarly inspiration. Right? So Izumi Seiichi, who was the first um, ethnology student in the Japanese empire, eventually became Japan's own Malinowski. Um, so please tell us more about Izumi, this very important central character in your book and the making of this Japanese human scientist. Sure. Um, I think Izumi would have liked my description of himself as Japan's Malinowski uh, because in his autobiographical writings and, and such, he says that that is what he aspired to be. Malinowski, as you said, is, is usually credited with developing the structure of modern scientific fieldwork, and Izumi was recognized in his own time as Japan's preeminent fieldworker. He was a remarkable but also really complicated figure that I struggled to do justice to and also to evaluate fairly. He was born in 1915, so in the middle of the transwar parameters, uh, the parameters for the transwar generation. Um, in Tokyo, uh, his family moved to Kijo, uh, Seoul, um, the Korean capital, when he was 12. It was then under Japanese occupation. Uh, his father moved the family there so he could work at Kijo Tekukudaigaku, uh, Kijo Imperial University. He and Kijo Imperial University is an interesting institution. It's the first Japanese university founded outside the home islands. And it was sort of a response to this moment of cultural rule, um, wherein the Koreans were offered a shot at higher education and sort of new career pathways, but also with the hope that they would then buy into the Japanese imperial project. In fact, Izumi Seiichi's father was more or less a colonial dissident. Um, and he encouraged his all of his children, but especially Izumi, to be skeptical of Japanese colonialism and to maintain respect for Korean culture, lifestyles, and, and peoples. Um, 
Izumi himself matriculated at Kyoto Teikokudaigaku uh, in the 1930s, and um, he began studying ethnology. Uh, as you said, he was the first ethnology major in the Japanese empire. Um, so this gave him a lot of unique opportunities. He was able to accompany his advisors, who were Japanese, on early studies of the Orochin. That's the papers I found in Harbin. Um, also the Goldie people on the Manchukuo frontier. Uh, then for his senior thesis project, um, this was his first and, and really his only major solo research project. Uh, he wrote about Jeju-do, an island off the coast of southern Korea. Um, after he graduated, he, he, he had the opportunity of a lifetime to organize a group study of Mokyo, a puppet state on the Manchukuo frontier. Um, and this set a new paradigm of group fieldwork that really lasted for the rest of his career. Then he served three years in the Japanese army on the Manchukuo border. Um, and after that, he returned to research t- as a participant in Japan's biggest ethnological expedition to date, um, to that point, uh, in New Guinea, uh, which was then under Japanese control. It had been taken over by the Navy. Um, After the war, he was repatriated to Japan. He worked to help other repatriates settle into this this quote-unquote homeland that was quite unfamiliar to many of them. And he really thought his academic career had come to an end. But against all odds, he managed to secure another position, this time at Meiji University in Tokyo. And from there, he pivoted to join the faculty at Todai, the University of Tokyo, uh, Japan's flagship university. Um, And this is where he built Japan's first cultural anthropology department. Um, He began working for the U.S. occupation. Uh, during this time, doing survey research around Tokyo. Uh, And during the occupation, Japanese citizens weren't able to travel abroad. They were legally prohibited from leaving the the home islands. So when he wanted to get out of Tokyo, he organized expeditions to Tsushima and Hokkaido at at the opposite extremes of, of the Japanese archipelago. Um, And when the opportunity to travel abroad opened up again in 1952 with the end of the occupation, he became the first Japanese researcher to venture to Brazil to study the diaspora community there. Um, And his work in Brazil awakened a new interest in South America. So in the final phase of his career, he became known for his work in pre-Inca cultures in Peru. And He died shortly after the student movement of 1968, which really I I represent as marking the end of the intellectual hegemony of his generation. So all in all, he he really had um, an an astonishing and also very well-documented career, and everything I learned about him further sort of reinforced my conviction that he was the perfect vehicle for this story that I wanted to tell. Yeah, fascinating character. And throughout, you know, his life, his life is basically like a mirror of um, his whole generation, right? The generation of men of one age. Um, And in chapter two, here we kind of turn our focus to how fieldwork is done by this generation during wartime. So you remind us in this chapter that wars actually had huge impacts on scholarship and also on how human um, scientists in Japan 
conducted research. Um, so after the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937, uh, Japanese scholars had to abandon this uh, Malinowski-style independent fieldwork for group expeditions funded by the Japanese government and also the military. And then after Japan goes into the Pacific War in 1941 with Europe and the U.S., um, scholars were also, um, in a way, forced out of transnational networks of knowledge production. Um, so how did the Japanese human scientists like Izumi conduct research for the empire on the ground under these rather difficult circumstances? In the chapter, it's really interesting to read that you specifically discuss how fieldwork was carried out in two places, right? In Mokyo, like you mentioned, this um, Mongol borderlands region uh, west of Manchukuo and also uh, in New Guinea, right? This um, large place that was just sort of uh, annexed by the Navy. So please tell us more about how research was conducted in these two places during the war. Sure. So I'll start with Mokyo, which Izumi visited with, with his team in 1938, shortly after the creation of the puppet state. He was This team was convened because the regime wanted information that would allow it to pacify the local population, which was hostile to the imposition of Japanese rule, um, and also because it wanted data that could legitimize control of the region. Um, and so Izumi was appointed as coordinator. He did participate as an ethnologist as well, but his primary role was was coordinator. And he shepherded these uh, 17 scholars um, on a five-week field excursion. Um, so the, the party of scholars may sound small, but actually it ended up being a larger group because that doesn't include translators and drivers. They traveled by truck and also an entire Guangdong army contingent appointed to protect the researchers because this was, after all, hostile territory. Um, the scholars represented uh, a host of different disciplines all connected to human science, and they produced a really large volume of information about the natural properties and uh, human inhabitants of the region. What it doesn't look like they produced is much practical information, anything that was immediately usable by the regime. Instead, I, I would say that the main value of this excursion was first as a precedent for further group studies of of uh, Mokyo, um, teams were dispatched there every year from 1938 to 1942. Um, and also the ideological value of the expedition, mostly because it advanced the idea, or at least it didn't, um, it wasn't um, advanced, the idea of ethnic confraternity wasn't new or created by these researchers, but they provided data to support it that looked scientific and credible. Um, so basically, the Japanese empire legitimized itself partly on the argument that it was a brotherhood, that all the peoples within its borders were related. And so it's their encapsulation in a common political community was to some extent natural. Um, and so Izumi and his colleagues collected data on the inhabitants of Mokyo that reinforced the idea that they had linkages to the Japanese and other people within the empire. And then in New Guinea, which Izumi visited in 1943, um, 
this this was a much larger expedition. In fact, um, I think I already said this, but it was the largest expedition in the history of Japanese human science to that time. Um, it was upwards of 400 people. Um, yeah, it was huge. Uh, Izumi, uh, they traveled in two uh, ships from the Japanese home islands. Um, it encompassed scholars from just about every major university in the home islands, also Kijo Teikoku Daigaku and Taihoku Teikoku. Kudaigaku in, in Taiwan, um, Japan's other major colonial university. And um, the expedition was based at Manokwari, which, which I visited. Um, it can't really be described as, as a town, um, but it was the base of the Japanese Navy uh, where it had its headquarters. And Izumi made two ethnological field trips from that base, the first was around the peninsula where Monokwari is situated, Bird's Head Peninsula. Um, and the second is to the Shoten Islands, which are offshore. Um, and one thing he was searching for was a way to relate the inhabitants of New Guinea to the Japanese in some way, or at least to other subjects of the Japanese empire. Um, and this was obviously a more difficult project than relating the Mongolian people to the Japanese just because they looked so different and their culture was so unrecognizable to Japan. Um, it was, you know, very much characterized as a, as, um, a series of savage cultures, quote unquote. Um, so in that sense, it was a more difficult and uh, we might also say a, a less successful project. Um, after the war, Izumi's writings on New Guinea were evaluated as some of the least scholarly and uh, least responsible of his career. Um, but the the sort of on New Guinea, he actually did collect information of more practical value. There was very little data on um, how many people inhabited Bird's Head Peninsula or the Shoten Islands or um, or even where they were distributed. Uh, these were this this was sort of an anthropological topography of interest, uh, but it was studied in a, in a more or less piecemeal way by individual researchers who settled in various communities um, and, and didn't necessarily venture beyond that, partly due to the difficulty of travel. So one thing Izumi was trying to do for the Japanese Empire was was to sort of understand the demographic distribution. He was able to do that. He also drew maps of the location of food resources. A lot of these communities were hunter-gatherer communities. Um, so they relied on sort of fixed uh, locations of natural resources like sago palms um, and so he drew a map of these, which he passed along to the Japanese Navy, which the Navy subsequently used to monopolize those resources and thereby force the inhabitants of New Guinea into conscript labor. Um, about five weeks after Izumi left New Guinea, the the Navy came to blows with the indigenous population. Um, and in one incident, um, the massacre of the Biak people, uh, about 2,000 people were killed as a result of, of this conflict. So I think this, this was one of the hardest parts of the book for me to write because it raised a lot of important questions that are, I think are at the heart of the inquiry um, about the complicity 
of human science in empire um, and and worse than empire. And uh, how do we how do we deal with that um, responsibility? Um, how how direct is their responsibility for creating knowledge that could be abused in this way? Hmm. Yeah, this is a very interesting and solemn point to reflect on, right? Especially reading in your book that um, these scholars actually um, made a big name for themselves, right? Domestically back home and then created these booms and um, allowed to carve out this kind of unprecedented public role for themselves in, in Japanese academia. Uh, but then in the fields themselves, other things were happening at the same time. Um, so can, can you please maybe speak a little bit more about the impacts of these human scientists' research and fieldwork um, on the empire? If any, you kind of spoke about how they didn't really produce any kind of practical knowledge, right, for policymakers. Um, but what are the other kind of impacts? You kind of briefly also wrote about the Mongol boom, and later we'll talk about the Inca boom in the post-war era. Sure. So the the data that the human scientists collected was was largely too abstract to really apply to colonial policymaking, especially given the very brief duration of the Japanese empire. By the time the human scientists left the field in New Guinea, for example, they uh, the the navy was also pulling out. Um, they were evacuating as bombs dropped all around them, and in fact, some people had to leave by canoe because all of the ships were already gone. Uh, so, sort of the the practical impact was was extremely limited. Um, research was was useful to legitimize this central conceit of the Japanese empire, that of confraternity. But um, as you as you said, I think the primary benefit was very much to the human scientists themselves. Um, and they very much marketed themselves, very cannily marketed themselves um, as public figures uh, through a lot of publications for the masses. There's really a, a wealth of documents that I consulted uh, in this project that were that had no real connection to a university imprint. They were um, simply marketed for the masses. Um, artifact exhibitions were extremely popular, um, a sort of sense of exoticism took hold. Um, and these were popular, I should observe, throughout the empire. So uh, you have them taking place, say, in Korea and Taiwan, um, these multinational audiences looking at these artifacts collected from Mongolia and New Guinea. Uh, and sort of, I mean, perhaps I speculate, imagining a sort of a shared convergence of, of themselves as onlookers or spectators of these artifacts of another culture. So it, it sort of, I think, plays on the sense of identification in interesting ways. Uh, newspaper reportage was another way of reaching mass audiences. Uh, this was not possible in um, in the uh, in in some other subsequent cases where funding was limited, um, but correspondence accompanied the New Guinea expedition into the field um, and reported on it for the Yomiuri Shimbun, Japan's uh, one of Japan's major newspapers. Interestingly, these articles were published long after the team actually got back from the field. Uh, so and and after New Guinea fell to the Allies, in fact. So it's part 
of this systematic campaign of misinformation, but at the same time, it was really appealing to Japanese audiences, again, sort of for these exoticizing reasons, um, a, a, perhaps an escape from the depressing context of wartime. Film footage screenings, um, sort of th- this had only recently even become possible, uh, but both the New Guinea team and the Mokyo team carried cameras into the field, um, slideshows of, of photos, photo books, um, all of them hit the lecture circuit um, and were extremely popular. So this, um, as you said, the sort of what they did in the field um, bore little correspondence to what they said they did. Um, but what the, the sort of marketing of these expeditions was what allowed them to continue um, almost until the very, very end of the empire. Hmm. Thank you. And this pursuit of objective knowledge um, continued actually um, even at the end of World War II and into um, the U.S. occupation period, and this is discussed in your um, third chapter of the book. But unlike during the wartime or um, in the interwar transwar periods um, under U.S. occupation, this time the pursuit of objective scientific knowledge is in the service of new values of democracy, capitalism, and also peace. Ideas often um, associated with this idea of modernization, as you pointed out in the book, um, so how did the Japanese field generation collaborate with their American colleagues now in research? And what were the sort of shared methods and also concerns of this new post-war collaborative fieldwork? And how did the Japanese scholar kind of reestablish themselves within this new post-war um, global network of knowledge production? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Japan was occupied by the U.S. from from 1945 to mid-1952, so six and a half years. It was it was a fairly long time, which was an incubator for a very fruitful, uh, I would argue, relationship between Japanese and American scholars that, that to some extent continues to this day. Um, and what undergirded that relationship in the 40s and 50s was, I think, a mutual eagerness for collaboration by human scientists from both Japan and the United States. And for their part, Japanese scholars had a few motivations for wanting to work with the Americans. Um, First, I think they had some initial trepidation that they would be brought up on charges as war criminals. And um, as I think the the case of Izumi in New Guinea shows, there could have been a, a substantial amount of justification for that. What actually happened is that American scholars who accompanied the occupation argued that this was inappropriate, that their colleagues across the Pacific were were no more than normally patriotic for a period of nationalism, uh, that they had done no more than they themselves would. And in fact, about 90% of, of American anthropologists, for example, who were active during the war did put their anthropology training to some kind of military purpose. So they argued against bringing up 
these scholars on war crimes charges. So I think the Japanese scholars were considerably relieved to be exonerated, and that put them in a more collaborative mood already. But maybe a sort of cruder but important motivation was was simply that they they really needed money. Um, and post-war Japan was simply in ruins. It was just about impossible to make a living as an academic except through connections to the occupation. Um, that was the only the only funder of serious scholarship during that time. Um, and so anybody who wanted to carry on with a scholarly career had to bring themselves to work with the occupation. And it sort of that was really successful in accruing all of the human science resources of Japan to itself um, and really successful also in um, making sure that all the Japanese scholars who became influential or became successful in all the way through um, into the 1960s uh, were friendly to the occupation and to the United States. And on the flip side, um, American scholars were also really eager to work with their Japanese counterparts. Um, they were sent to Japan with the goal of incorporating Japan into this American geopolitical orbit that was forming in opposition to the Soviet geopolitical orbit. Um, so the U.S. was looking to incorporate Japan into its network of knowledge production amid the burgeoning Cold War. Um, it was also trying to transform Japan into what it saw as its own image of a democratic, capitalist, and peaceful nation. Um, and I talk about those ideals in the book as the ideology of modernization, um, this sort of teleological approach in which the United States is the culmination of civilization and every society is on its way to becoming America. And America, of course, has the responsibility of facilitating that process. Um, so fieldwork was useful for that because it could index Japan's transformation, um, but also a lot of the values that uh, come out through the process of fieldwork, like unfettered discussion or open communication are sort of reflective of, of other tendencies in democracy. Um, so, so that was part of it too. The, the sort of other pillar of U.S. obligation to work with Japanese scholars is that they desperately wanted access to Japanese knowledge of, of areas that hadn't been studied by the, uh, any really any Western power um, in any great depth. So basically all parts of the Japanese empire, um, as I've suggested already, Japan was really active in studying its empire. It was sort of an unparalleled knowledge producer during this time. I would argue that to a greater extent than any Western power, Japan used knowledge as a, as a strategy of rule. Um, and so Especially after, say, China and North Korea um, were closed to Western scholars, um, Japanese sources on these spaces became the only recent knowledge of, of them that could be obtained. Um, so the U.S. Was, was eager to access that material and, and also eager to prevent it from falling into Soviet hands. Um, so this this sort of there were there were reasons on both sides to collaborate. I've made it sound really instrumental. I would argue that it was also a really friendly process um, built on personal relationships and and a kind of mutual respect, which is not to 
diminish the power dynamics that were inherent in this relationship. Of course, the U.S. was the hegemon and it was also the victorious nation. Um, Jap- it's dubious how much Japanese scholars could have declined to cooperate. Um, that being said, uh, I think there were a few factors that, that made this easier. Some of these scholars knew each other from before the war and had been friendly um, because they were already active uh, and had met in the United States or in Europe or even in Japan. Um, and so, so they were eager to renew those acquaintances. A lot of the U.S. scholars who came over with the occupation were also quite young. Um, for the most part, this was, these were men who were seeking to build their careers, not, not um, established professors who had great jobs who were just looking for a new adventure. Um, So these young scholars who came over to Japan encountered the men of one age who were in perhaps the third, even the fourth decade of of their scholarly lives. Um, And they were simply overawed uh, by by the fact that um, they were able to work with these extremely knowledgeable people um, who who were in turn eager to share um, and also to learn from them because the Japanese scholars sort of like, like the rest of the country at large thought they had a lot to learn from the United States about how to rebuild and, and become a more successful nation. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And during the occupation years, um, the Japanese scholars also had a shift in with regard to sort of the themes or contents of their research, right? So you kind of remarked how there is a pursuit for a new vision of intellectual inquiry. So moving from the study of race or jinshu to the study of culture or bunka, and then the understanding of the study of minzoku, um, which was understood as sort of ethnic nation um, in a transport years, has also kind of shifted, right? Um, so what is meant by culture in minzoku in the post-war Japanese scholarship? And also how and why did Japanese scholars come to embrace culture, right, as a new important analytical variable? So these terms I had to treat really carefully throughout the book because their meanings weren't stable and they weren't agreed by consensus either. Um, Minzoku and Bunka particularly were established terms before and during the war, but then took on new valences afterwards and, and I, I would argue aren't stable even today. Um, so during the imperial era, I think it would be possible to define Minzoku as as a hierarchy of related peoples with the Japanese at the top or any of those individual peoples. Um, and we can look to scholarship by people like Kevin Doak or Tessa Morris Suzuki to, to, to understand that construction. But during the post-war period, Minzoku came to mean something, I think, closer to the Western notion of ethnicity, which became so popular in the 1960s, um, connoting independent groups bound by both physical and behavioral characteristics. Um, So a sort of a fusion of race and culture. Um, Bunka also was an established term prior to 1945. Um, it, It had in many cases, nationalist overtones, like like the term Nihon Bunka was, was usually used in a, in a very positive way um, in, in the 1930s and 1940s. In the post-war period, Bunka also shifted a bit. Um, 
in tandem with the discrediting of the whole idea of race. So this was this was a global phenomenon based on the fact, the discovery of Nazi atrocities, which were predicated on race. Um, the whole idea of race was discredited. Um, it was repudiated uh, first by UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Social, and Cultural Organization that was that was founded in, in 1945, um, sort of as a cultural clearinghouse for all of the uh, nations that became associated with the first and ultimately the third world. Um, And the um, UNESCO issued a statement uh, repudiating race that it later backtracked on. Um, But with the elimination of race as an acceptable variable, uh, culture was substituted as a more neutral category of analysis that could take on a lot of what scholars talked about when they talked about race, but lacked that kind of association with Nazism. Um, so culture culture was seen as being more neutral. Of, of course it was not. Um, the cultural conception that came to prevail in Japan in the 1940s, I would argue, is very heavily influenced by the anthropologist Franz Boas, um, who was active in the early 20th century um, and was probably the the scholar who is most associated with the idea of relativism, that each each individual culture is comprehensible on its own terms. It has its own internal logic um, and it's worthy of respect. There's no hierarchy of cultures. And Boaz was the teacher of Ruth Benedict, who is renowned for her book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, that was uh, an explication of Japanese culture that was widely read by both occupation scholars, and um, it was translated into Japanese and uh, read by Japanese scholars as well. Hmm. And then in the next chapter, chapter five, Others into Japanese, we see how sort of a lot of these rebuilding of Japanese human science um, and also the transformation right within the institution um, during the occupation period actually laid foundations uh, for a large-scale field expedition, uh, actually akin to those of the imperial age. But because of travel uh, restrictions, Right, under U.S. occupation. Um, however, this time the expeditions were actually carried out within Japan's border, specifically in places like Tsushima and Hokkaido. Uh, so what were the goals of these um, group expeditions this time? Sure. So I look at, as you say, the expeditions to Tsushima and Hokkaido. These were the two um, earliest. And they shared several common goals. First. Both of them, I think, sought to revitalize the Japanese tradition of human science. Um, They were the first studies of the post-war period that were organized by Japan. Prior uh, prior to 1950, between 1945 and 1950, uh, this kind of research was not possible um, or was only possible under the sponsorship of the U.S. occupation uh, because Japanese institutions simply were 
uh, lacking resources to do so. So this was really a landmark achievement that this kind of research became possible once again. Um, and even more than that, uh, it was sort of a way of demonstrating that Japan was returning to the field. Uh, so they brought along some Americans on each expedition. And the American scholars who accompanied them were, were actually only too happy to learn from the Japanese scholars and to be brought to these places that they could not have expected to visit on their own. Um, so it was uh, fruitful in, in that kind of relationship building. Another really important motivation for this, these, these scholarly projects was sort of bringing about unity uh, in the Japanese human science profession. So uh, after 1945, there were a lot of internal divisions among human scientists, disciplinary divisions, of course, um, university rivalries, which were quite potent at that time. Uh, the struggle to obtain a position was really bitter. Uh, it was quite difficult because there were so many scholars who were repatriating from the empire, who were competing for a very small number of faculty posts at entirely metropolitan universities. Um, and, and I would say also overlaying all of that is just sensitivity about collaboration, um, the ability to point fingers, the fear that, that somebody would out you for research that you conducted, um, the, somebody would breach this kind of compact of silence. Um, that was another tension. So the expeditions, by bringing all of these people into the field together in the service of a common intellectual project, were really successful in fostering unity in the human science ranks. And then I think they also had uh, a sort of a political dimension as well. Um, in the case of Tsushima, the sovereignty over the island was at this moment, 1950, quite uncertain. The U.S. hadn't yet confirmed Japan's post-war borders. And there was some anxiety that Tsushima would be assigned to Korea. And part of the reason human scientists were so concerned about that is because they themselves, under the imperial age, had supplied data suggesting that Tsushima was, um, one of them used the term stepstone, between Japan and Korea, that its culture was neither purely Japanese nor purely Korean, but sort of a fusion of the two. And this was done with the with the project of showing that Japan and Korea were had cultural commonality and should be incorporated into a joint political unit. But after the war, of course, that was discredited and no longer viable. Um, so the idea became to show that Tsushima was and always would irrevocably be part of Japan. So their findings, remarkably, suggest uh, in just about every discipline, there were more than 50 scholars who were sent on, on each of two expeditions. Um, their, their findings suggest that the, of course, that the Tsushima was and, and always had been a fully Japanese uh, entity and, and should remain part of Japan. And in fact, it, it did remain part of Japan. And in the case of the expeditions to Hokkaido, these were to study the Ainu. Um, and the Ainu were historically cast as racial and cultural others. Um, and that 
began to change a little bit during the pre-war period when they were incorporated into the Japanese minzoku in, in a very subordinate position. Um, and some scholars have called this the dying race paradigm, that the Ainu were predicted to vanish entirely, to be absorbed by the Japanese minzoku. And so um, scholars furnished all of this evidence suggesting that uh, their, their culture and, their, the, and the Ainu themselves were, were dying out. Um, in the post-war period, this fell out of favor along with the, the construct of race. And instead, the scholars borrowed techniques from American salvage anthropology, which was used to study Native Americans. Um, again, though, to suggest their forthcoming disappearance um, and full interpretation into the Japanese nation in the future. Um, and this was done to sort of incorporate Hokkaido uh, more firmly into the post-war Japanese polity. Hmm. Yeah, it's very fascinating to read how, you know, their attitudes toward these spaces shift, right? So much for objectivity. <laughs> um, and Interestingly, in chapter six, uh, Japanese into others, right? It's a really interesting chapter to read in juxtaposition with the previous one, others into Japanese. So here we we can see how um, scholars like Izumi Seichi turn their attention to um, diasporic communities abroad. So it discusses how Japanese human scientists found this Japanese-ness in others uh, in places like Brazil, and um, like you said in the book, Izumi said she was actually the first Japan-based scholar to conduct fieldwork among the Japanese diaspora in the post-war period. And his fieldwork in Brazil was um, very instrumental in sort of the understanding of the category of Nikkei, right? So how do Japanese scholars like Izumi understand Japanese immigrants and their children in the diaspora? So emigration to Brazil really took off at the end of the Meiji period. Um, emigration in general in Japan wasn't possible before the Meiji period, but uh, at that point, population pressure and, and poverty started to force people out. Brazil actually wasn't an attractive destination until after the United States stopped accepting Japanese immigrants with the um, with the Gentlemen's Agreement of 1907. But then Brazil really boomed. And uh, in 1941, by the time the, the border closed to Japanese immigrants, over 200,000 ha uh, had actually settled in Brazil. And this uh, amounted to more than anywhere else. And for the most part, during these early 20th century years, they weren't very integrated into Brazilian society. They used Japanese, they followed Japanese customs, and they sort of lived on their own in these exclusively Japanese agricultural settlements, many set up by emigration corporations um, called colonias, coronia. And um, so this sort of set the stage for a huge tragedy um, during the war. After, after Brazil declared war on Japan, it banned Japanese language broadcasting and publishing. Uh, this was the language of the enemy country. Um, and it was feared that uh, there could be spying going on um, and feared without much basis, I should observe. Um, and so, but then you have this whole monolingual Japanese population that isn't accustomed to using Brazilian Portuguese um, that can't get their news 
locally um, that can only get their news now directly from Japan. And of course, everything that's coming out of Japan is propaganda. And if you're living in Japan, you can see with your own eyes that there may not be full truth in the news that you're receiving. Um, but in the antipodes, less that's that's just less possible. So when Japan declared uh, its intention of surrendering, uh, many of the diaspora simply refused to believe that this was actually possible. They thought that the surrender broadcast by the emperor in August 1945 was an allied hoax. Um, and there were some who swiftly came to realize that it was real. Um, but a large, uh, a, a strong majority um, continued to believe that actually Japan had won the war. Um, and so this resulted in a community schism into two opposing factions, the Makigumi, the defeat faction, which acknowledged that Japan had lost the war, and the Kachigumi, who continued to profess, at least in public, that Japan had won the war. And the Kachigumi was very invested in making the Makigumi believe, or at least pretend to believe, that Japan had won the war. Um, and it perpetrated a lot of violence to this effect. Um, there were a, around two dozen assassinations. Um, there were um, also a, a lot of interesting swindles, uh, terrible swindles, I should say. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of Brazilian diaspora who had hoped to return home in triumph uh, were sold boat tickets to Japan or plots of land in the Philippines, which Japan was was said to be still in charge of, that kind of thing. Um, this was nothing more than, uh, you know, swindlers seeking to cash in on, on this community delusion, as it were. But it created a lot of general disorder that was very difficult for the Brazilian government to deal with. Um, and so the Brazilian government alerted UNESCO uh, as, or alerted the UN, which alerted UNESCO of, of this phenomenon that was going on. And UNESCO created a fellowship for somebody to study this problem. And of course, it had to be somebody Japanese um, who was able to communicate with the Kachigumi and the Makigumi, uh, who only spoke Japanese. Um, so it ended up going to a Japanese scholar and at this point, Izumi already had a relationship with UNESCO, um, which was active in Japan at the time. He was also dying to do research abroad. Uh, he had been in the home island since repatriating in late 1945. And he had the qualification of, of being familiar with some uh, diaspora studies from some of his own research projects that, that he carried out during the occupation under, uh, under occupation auspices. Um, the drawback was he didn't know anything about South America um, and he didn't speak Brazilian Portuguese. So UNESCO hooked him up with a, a Japanese immigrant collaborator on the ground. Um, and they started with the hypothesis that the Kachigumi were denying the fact of Japan's defeat because they were somehow more, more culturally Japanese than the Makigumi. Um, and so they started to probe uh, manifestations of Japanese identity, like language, clothing, food, uh, housing styles, so on and so forth. Um, actually, they couldn't find any significant differences. The only real difference they found was regional, um, that there were more Kachigumi uh, located in southern Brazil around the, the San Paulo area where, where most of the immigrants had settled, than up in the Amazon, where there were fewer immigrants. 
And um, they, they uh, realized that the difference between these communities lay in their intention regarding settlement. So most of those who had settled in southern Brazil uh, had gone with the hope of returning to Japan uh, within a few years. Uh, the, the phrase was kokyo nishiki, to return home wearing brocade. They wanted to go home rich, um, having made their fortune in Brazil and retire to Japan. Um, but emigrants in the Amazon had largely gone with the intention of migrating personally. So it was very difficult for the southern Brazil immigrants to accept the fact of Japan's defeat because it definitively put an end to this dream of returning home that immigrants in the North accepted relatively more easily because they didn't share. Um, so this was really a landmark discovery by Izumi. Um, the sort of corollary to this is that, oddly, the research really um, didn't see the light of print for more than 10 years afterwards. And at first, I was really puzzled why this would be because it seems such an interesting finding. Um, and eventually, uh, it occurred to me that Izumi and, and um, even uh, his Japanese government sponsors probably wanted to cover it up because the Kachigumi very much reinforced negative stereotypes of Japan that had emerged during World War II, that they were, that they were fanatical, that they were irrational, that they were sort of uh, suicidally ridiculous in a way. Um, and instead, they wanted to promote this new image of Japan as democratic, as capitalist, as peaceful, uh, all qualities that couldn't be assigned to the Kachigumi. So it wasn't until well after this episode that anybody really wrote about it. Hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I guess Izumi didn't really stop there, right? And, and in 1958, um, he and Ishida Ichilo actually organized Japan's first archaeological excavation outside of Asia, uh, and now this time in the Andes. And this is covered in the chapter, um, in the seventh chapter of your book, Excavating National Identity in the Antipodes. Um, it's a really fascinating chapter to read. And um, you also talked about how Izumi also led four other subsequent digs at pre-Inca sites in Peru in the 1960s. Um, so these excavations, along with Izumi's collaboration and I guess his finesse, right, his expertise <laughs> with the Japanese media, created this so-called Inca boom amongst the public in Japan. Um, so it's really fascinating to read. So why did these expeditions stoke so much popular interest? And, and what does this tell us about um, how Japanese scholarship and the intellectual community has evolved in the 1960s now? So I think, I think there are a few interesting reasons behind this very surprising phenomenon of the Gabumu as it was labeled in its own time. Um, so people were, were really aware that this was happening. Uh, maybe the first is is sort of convergence with other booms. So this was really the era of boomu um, in accordance with the general mood of consumerism. Uh, there were booms in archaeology and photography and pocket paperbacks, all sort of vehicles that that the Inca boomu could could capitalize on. I think a lot of the credit for this particular boom really redounds to Izumi. He, he was the consummate organizer and publicist. He was able to secure state sponsorship for his 
expeditions, which which gave them a certain national significance. The gov- the Japanese government held departure ceremonies each time he d- he left with a team for Peru. Um, they gave them Japanese flags to fly on the ground in Peru, which is interesting because you definitely wouldn't have seen Japanese flags flying in Japan or uh, in any part of Asia in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so it had that kind of national significance, of course. Izumi was very conscious that he was carrying out research on behalf of the Japanese government in the backyard of the United States, which was traditionally dominant in Peruvian archaeology. Um, so, so this was a way for Japan to impress the world, so to speak, after, after its uh, humiliation of defeat. Um, he also really carefully cultivated the media. He got a lot of media sponsorship, um, and the media had kind of been out of the game of sponsoring research uh, for a long time, but newspapers were finally wealthy enough to do this, and they wanted to um, because it elevated their image a little bit to be associated with the production of objective knowledge. Um, again, he worked with the Omidi Shimbu. And um, they together settled on the choice of Hayashi Fusao, uh, a really well-known Japanese writer who uh, had been purged by the occupation after doing a lot of nationalist writings in the pre-war period. Um, And this was his first real assignment in the post-war period. Um, And he was an excellent writer, wrote really vividly of the stuff he saw. He had no particular expertise in in archaeology. He didn't speak Spanish. Um, The team thought he was probably bored a lot of the time, Um, but he wrote amazing articles for the Japanese public. Um, There were were dozens and dozens published uh, over over the course of each year that these expeditions were going on from 1958 to 1969. Um, Izumi himself wrote quite a lot for the mass public, uh, for, for um, sort of travelogues, books for children, uh, photo books, uh, represent, uh, sort of uh, drawings even. He put together a number of museum expeditions, uh, sorry, exhibitions, um, also exhibitions in department stores, which were uh, probably more frequented than the museums during this time uh, and uh, were very popular. Uh, Emperor Hirohito actually attended the opening ceremony of one such exhibition, which gave it a certain imperial cachet. Um, so all of, through all of these vehicles, he was, he was really successful in, in bringing the, the pre-Columbian civilization into the Japanese imperial mindset. I think we also can't write off the appeal of exoticism, especially at a moment when most of the Japanese public was unable to travel. Um, There were travel restrictions in place right up through 1964 when Japan hosted the Olympics for the first time. Uh, Even after 1964, though, um, most Japanese couldn't afford to travel abroad. The value of the yen was relatively low. And... um, Peru was seen as especially difficult due to its distance from Japan, um, the relative dearth of of Japanese speakers on the ground to help them, the very undeveloped tourism infrastructure. Um, A lot of people thought Andean cuisine was not very tasty. So so Peru was sort of a fantasy destination for many people that captured their imagination. And then I think there are a couple sort of more ideological reasons, if we ask ourselves, why the Inca in particular? Why not some other uh, destination that Izumi could have visited? Um, And one is because of the hypothesis of Japanese Andean confraternity. Um, So 
Uh, this actually emerged in Western scholarship, which which gave it a certain credibility um, that the Japanese were distantly related to the indigenous Quechua people um, who had been the subjects of the Inca Empire. Um, and the evidence on this is, I would say, mixed at best. But people like Hayashi Fusao and, and even the um, Izumi himself really played this up as a way of hooking the Japanese public. Um, and, and we can sort of see why this was effective. Japan had tried uh, to sell this narrative of confraternity with its Asian subjects during the age of empire, those theories were discredited and, and in fact useless in the post-war period when there was no empire, but it sort of left Japan adrift in the world, which, which reflected how it felt geopolitically. Um, and so the establishment of confraternity with the indigenous Andeans uh, gave them new, new relatives in this new world, so to speak. Um, so that's, yeah, it, it's really interesting. Um, and then I guess the, the last um, sort of maybe the most important factor out of all is um, the Inca were very much represented as a foil for the Japanese national identity. Um, so in the 1950s, the Inca empire was uh, more or less represented sort of as an analogous case of very slow progress through the stages of history, um, the sort of um, in, in a materialist sense. So uh, every state is represented as progressing through these set stages of development. Um, and the Inca uh, reached this period of despotism in the 15th century, so to speak, but the um, Japan only in the 20th century with this emperor system that deprived people of their subjectivity. Um, so this sort of relativizes the Japanese trajectory through history and, and removes blame in a sense, because it means that any sort of um, alleged deviance on the part of Japan is, is not actual deviance, but simply the operation of a very slow progress through history. Around the 1960s, uh, the mid-1960s, this starts to lose relevance as Japan becomes uh, an economic superpower. Um, and then the representation of the Inca very much changes, um, and it's seen as being a parallel case of superiority, um, especially technological superiority. The Inca were very much known as uh, masons, um, as stoneworkers uh, of, their, of their time. And so uh, they emerge as this sort of case study in technological superiority that Japan is also at this moment taking on that reputation. And um, the last chapter of your book actually turns our attention to the student protests in 1968. And you kind of re-examine the roles of the men of one age um, in these protests, right? So here you point out really interestingly that, uh, quote, Far from complacently enjoying the successes of the order they had created, by the 1960s, transwar human scientists in Japan were themselves critical of longstanding paradigms of knowledge production, unquote. Um, so what were their critiques of the status quo during the student protests of 1968? And also what kind of changes were brought about as a result, um, if any? So what I thought was really interesting in studying the student movement is that, um, unsurprisingly, students are, are often given credit for all the change that, that is brought about by the student movement of 1968. Uh, but what I found in the Japanese context is 
as you've said, many of the critiques that the students brought to bear on on society were actually anticipated and articulated first by the men of one age. Um, And they're usually represented in this moment as, as sort of stodgy, uncompromising antagonists. But in fact, I think they really set the terms of the debate. They themselves in the 1960s were were ready to rethink modernization theory and allegiance to these ideals of democracy, capitalism, and peace, um, their alliance with the United States, and and also um, ultimately the values and goals of objective knowledge. And partly this was the influence of the wider world beyond Japan. There were a lot of challenges to field research in this era. Um, especially uh, in the wake of the publication of Malinowski's journals. Uh, he uh, appears a very different figure in his journals than he does in his published works. Uh, it became very clear that what he, what he claimed to be doing in his published works was not exactly what he was um, admitting to doing in his journals. So, so that was sort of an interesting moment in which the objectivity, uh, the intrinsic objectivity of the field was challenged. We also have the Hakone conferences, which were a series of meetings that took place during the 60s between um, Japanese and Western scholars, where Japanese scholars really broke with U.S. scholars over critiques of modernization. Um, They challenged the idea that Japan had achieved success as a democratic, capitalist, peaceful nation. Um, They thought perhaps Japan wasn't democratic at all. It it appeared to be going in the direction still today of of one-party rule, um, that elections were kind of meaningless, uh, campaigning was just a ritual, um, that capitalism had simply led to materialism and consumerism rather than actual prosperity? Was Japan really peaceful or had it simply become a lackey of the United States and the Vietnam War that was going on at the time? Basically, had modernization simply created new ways of oppressing people? Um, so they were, they, were, they were sort of willing to take on these ideals that had animated their entire careers. What I thought was interesting was that this was combined with an absolute unwillingness to revisit their work that they had done prior to 1945. Um, And so the intellectual legacy on which they had built their entire careers was really never questioned. They remained very approving of and beholden to pre-war research. In Izumi's case, he finally published his thesis on Jejudo um, 30 years later uh, after he wrote it in 1966. He he never revised it. He didn't update his reading list. Um, it, it still uh, sort of speaks um, at ter- by turns positively and critically about the Japanese colonial establishment there. Um, and, and that's sort of, I think, characteristic of the entire Japanese academic establishment, uh, which was very protective over, um, over the sort of pre-1945 body of work. Um, And this combination, I think, of reticence regarding the actual, what what could even be considered crimes of human scientists um, and their willingness to speak out against ideals that they had cherished throughout their careers really set the terms of engagement for the student protesters. Um, And this was really different from other contexts in the world. I'm thinking most notably of say, Germany, um, where in West Germany, uh, the repudiation of the Nazi heritage was was a key part of the 1968 student protests. Um, but these these were the terms. And, and ironically, uh, what I think is, is very ironic is that the men of one age themselves 
open this door that led the way to the demise of their hegemony um, and a new heyday of subjective rather than objective knowledge and ultimately a new generation of scholarship. Hmm. Thank you. It's a very fascinating story of this generation. And um, like you said, many of them have already um, passed away. And, And the new generation of scholars in Japan, how are they viewing this generation of men of one age? So it's it's interesting that you ask that. There's been a spate of literature, I think, since the 1990s that has um, taken a more critical stance. Um, it's not just that the men of one age have passed; their immediate students, um, more or less, have also passed. Um, so it's it's sort of a more attenuated legacy that can now be viewed with a more critical eye. Um, there have also been some really generous archival donations that have given heft to these accounts that seek to dismantle um, some of these cherished myths of, of scholarship. And, and I myself uh, benefited from these donations. Uh, Izumi's son donated his papers to uh, Minpaku, the National Museum for Ethnology, where I was able to consult them and um, give this book a much richer texture. Um, I think that uh, to an extent, uh, they're very much still venerated. Um, their legacy has been challenged and refined, but not altogether repudiated. Um, and I think it really, the next step for us as a society is is to look not only in Japan, but beyond Japan at, um, at sort of the origins of how we know what we think we know um, and, and why do we believe these things and, and the context in which this knowledge was produced. I think anthropology is quite self-reflective of that, but I also think that there are blind spots that still need to, to be taken up. Thank you. That's really well said. Um, And on that note, I think we can wrap up today's interview. Thank you so much for taking up so much of your time to talk to us about your wonderful book. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But I do have one last question. That's sort of our traditional question uh, for our network is, can you tell us a little bit about um, the the projects that you're currently working on now? And also, um, if there's one book you can recommend to us, a new book, uh, what would it be? Sure. Um, I have to admit the pandemic has really slowed me down. I really had just finished working on this book um, into the field a a few months before it struck. So I had a few ideas for a new project and I was planning to go to Japan to explore their relative feasibility in libraries and archives this past summer. Obviously that that trip ended up not happening um, and I'm hoping to take it this coming summer if conditions permit. Um, but in the meantime, I've, I've gone back to the topic of my first book, um, working with two very wonderful co-editors to put together an edited collection on narcotics in early modern and modern Japan. Um, we're just now beginning to receive contributions uh, from our authors, and, and it's been really exciting to see how the field has developed since my book came out in 2013. And um, yeah, I'm also really enjoying and learning a lot from the process of collaborating, uh, which I haven't had a chance to do much of before now, but it's definitely a a rewarding experience. Uh, Books that I can recommend. Um, Full disclosure, I haven't haven't finished it yet, but I'm absolutely loving Amy Stanley's Stranger in the Shogun City. (laughs) That just came out uh, over the summer. I I take it you've heard of it. 
it's a sort of a micro history of, of one woman's lived experiences in her village and in early 19th century Idol. And it's, it's told through this extremely rich collection of letters that she sent back home to her family. Um, it's such an unusual and exciting archive. The, the book is really just such a vivid work of social history, urban history, rural history, women's history. Honestly, so much more than that, too. It's it's almost like a novel. I, I think it's probably the kind of book that many of us in, in Japanese history or history in general dream of writing. Um, and I include myself in that group. <laughs> Yes, um, I haven't read that book either, but um, she actually came to one of our um, colloquium talks um, and very kind of generously told us about the process of writing the book and also um, getting the manuscript published and things like that. So it was a really um, you know, beneficial experience. So I definitely will put that on my reading list. And thank you so much for recommending that. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will be too. I'm really looking forward to this edit volume that is coming out soon. I hope... I hope so too, but um, (laughs) I don't think it'll be too soon. But definitely we have that to look forward to. So thank you so much again. Um, I've really enjoyed this book and there's so many things that are, you know, directly connected to my own work. Um, It's a really, really wonderful book. I highly recommend all of our listeners to pick up a copy. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's really delightful to have this chance to talk about my book.